0: If you don't know me, my name is Matt, and I have a joy and honor of being the campus pastor here. And uh, I just wanted to say again, thank you so much for your generosity that allows us to do this, and thanks to the teachers. I know we have a bunch in the room here, and so, yeah, come on. Um, I've, (laughs) Having been in public leadership for the last, you know, several years, and uh, having gone through these last two, these last two were the hardest I've ever had to lead through, um, and I can't even imagine uh, what you had to go through these last two years. And so you made it. Well done. And uh, yeah, we couldn't say thank you enough. And also, I just wanted to, like, let's never lose the wonder of this, guys. I, I think since January, I was just trying to count it up while I was back there. We're somewhere around 19 or 20 salvations since the beginning of the year. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna talk about a heavy topic today, but this this gets me excited because that's what we're gonna talk about today, because that is life change for us and that's what we're all about here. So we are in a new series, I said, we're we're somebody much shorter than me used this. I'm sorry. It's gonna drive me nuts if I don't fix it. It wasn't David, I swear. Um <laughs> Uh, we, we are looking at old beliefs that just aren't true, or that are true, and uh, I actually was thinking about it this morning, about all the things as a kid that I used to believe that my parents just told me to get them, get me to do whatever they wanted me to do. Like There's just some of those things, and I hope I don't ruin any of them for you parents in here this morning, but I want to read some off to you that I, I realized we used to believe at one point. Did you know that at one point we used to believe that traveling by train could cause instant insanity? You know why? Because in the 1850s and 60s, when it became popular, they were so suspicious of the high speeds of the steam locomotive train, and they thought all of the rattling and the high speeds and the shaking was causing people to go crazy, because they were literally getting off of the train, jumping off, and having fits of insanity because of the high-speed reckless driving of the train. All right? And some of you think I just described your spouse's driving habits. And you said, oh, it all makes sense. No, but we used to think that that was high speed and caused insanity. This one is a little bit gross. Um, We thought that we could cure depression and anxiety by jamming an ice pick into the back of someone's eye socket and taking the ice pick and scraping it back and forth and scraping the emotional areas of the brain away. And oddly enough, some people thought it worked, and so they kept trying it, only to realize that most people ended up paralyzed or seriously maimed afterwards. And the scary part about this is, according to this article, that was 1946, wasn't that long ago, and we've come a long way. The other one is that uh, they thought gin was a cure for gout and indigestion. Uh, Way back when, gin was actually a medicine, but the problem was in the 1700s when they first came up with it, it was 80% ABV, diluted with turpentine and sulfuric acid, and had copious amounts of sugar in it to mask the the taste. And so not only was it not a gut curing, it was literally a gut rotting juice, but they would give it to people who had stomach problems. I guess you wouldn't have a problem anymore because you just wouldn't have a stomach. It was just gone. Uh, Here's one that I may ruin for some of you parents that coffee stunts your growth. Um, we used to believe that was true for a long time. Guess what? It's not true. Um, it, there is calcium loss that happens, but not enough to shrink you. So if you're short, don't blame it on the coffee. Uh, the other one, and this one I thought was funny, is that frightened ostriches do not actually stick their head in the ground when they're scared, right? You know the old saying, you just put your head in the ground. Well, the truth is there's eggs underneath there, and so they're trying to shift their eggs around to make sure their eggs are safe but when they're scared, they just run. They don't stick their head in the sand. Um, And some of you, if you're being honest, today is the first day you've ever learned that that one was actually true. But like that ostrich, we can tend to throw our head in the sand when difficult things come up in the Bible, when truths that become uncomfortable are in there. And outdated is one of those things that it's kind of hard to equate in our society now because we used to be able to say bell so we're out of style, and all these teenagers over here reminded us that they are in style somehow, right? But what do you do with things in the Bible that we don't want to deal with, that you don't want to be true? Well, we're going to talk about some of those uh, over the next four weeks, but today we're specifically talking about the topic of hell. What do you do with hell? What, what does God have to say about hell? Because uh, interestingly enough, our culture and our society... Uh, views hell very differently. And in fact, um, even many people who attend church, go to church, call themselves Christians, have very different beliefs about hell than what scriptures would say to be true about it. But these things have incredible implications on our life. The question I asked you a couple weeks ago, if you were here as we went through 1 Corinthians, is the same question you need to wrestle with today is, is the word of God authority? Is it true Because here's the thing about the Bible. It is either all true or it is worthless. It is either all true or worthless because I am not authority, so I can't decide what is right and wrong in here. And if the claim of Jesus in John is true, that he is the way, the truth, the life, if that's true, well, then the word of the revelation of Jesus is also true. Jesus didn't say he was a truth. He didn't say he was some of your truth. He said he was the truth, the only truth. And if the Bible is about Jesus, which cover to cover is Jesus, then we have to believe this to be true. Now, that sounds great and ethereal until you get into the meat of what we're going to talk about today. And then all of a sudden, it gets not as fun to believe that if we don't see it all the way through. So in the, in the midst of this conversation, you may have uh, a moment where I may say something that bothers you. Uh, my challenge is don't turn me off until I'm done. He, hear me out through the whole sermon, uh, and then we'll talk about it in the end. If you have questions, we'd love to dialogue with you about this. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, um, the, the previous chapters leading up to it, Jesus has been telling these parables Um, talking about the lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin. And really what he's talking about is God's pursuit of mankind when they rebelled against him. That there was all of these um, parables that were telling basically uh, that you, if you lost something valuable, would go to any length to find it. And Jesus is reiterating that through these stories that God has gone to great lengths to find his lost children. Well, then in chapter 16, he tells another parable and then he kind of shifts into this story. And interestingly enough, um, some believe this is a parable, but some believe this isn't a parable because in most parables, nobody gets a name. But in this parable, there's a name. And so uh, Jesus tells this story about um, the fate of two men, where these two men end up after they live life here on earth. So Luke chapter 16, let's go ahead and jump into verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. We're going to walk through this passage a little bit. But when Jesus is telling stories, Jesus doesn't waste words. So we need to pay attention to the things he says. says. Another translation basically says, He made a habit of living in splendor for himself. And so you get this picture of this guy who was incredibly rich because purple at that day was um, very, very hard to extract. You had to get it from shellfish, which means he wasn't just rich. He was filthy rich. And so um, the idea here is not just that he was rich, but that he was incredibly selfish. Um, he, He spent it all on himself. His life revolved around him. That's important to note. Verse twenty: At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even when the dog, even the dogs, came and licked his sores. And then he contrasts with this man Lazarus, who's sitting outside of the gate of his house, um, longing to eat. Notice it doesn't say that he got to eat the scraps of the table. It says that he longed to, to eat. He would have been happy to to jump into this guy's dumpster and eat his food. So you see these two stark contrasts of these men and you can't say, and you can say what you want, but you can't say that Lazarus didn't know this guy was out there, right? There's no way that he was unaware that this man had been laying at his front gate. And so he's making a purposeful decision to not even give this guy the scraps of his food, the scraps of his table. Let's keep reading. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, which really is just kind of uh, Old Testament Jewish speak for he went to be with the Lord. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, which is the the Greek word for hell, if you will, uh, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tongue of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony because of this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. As you read this, the first question you should probably be asking yourself is why is Lazarus, or not Lazarus, why is the rich man even in hell? From this story, did he commit any sin of action? No. He didn't hurt the man. He didn't harm the man. His sin wasn't one of action. His sin was one of inaction. He, he didn't do anything. He was greedy. He could have solved the problem, and he just spent it all on himself. And so it's subtle, but really what he's talking about is the reason he's in hell is not because of a sin of action, but a sin of omission. He didn't, he didn't do what he knew to be right, which is true for all of us because the scripture says that he who knows what is right to do and does not do it for him, it is sin. And so even the things we should do that we don't do are sin. Does that make sense? See, here, here's what we need to catch at this point. We've all sinned not only in action, but in inaction. We've all rebelled against God. We've all chosen to go against him, whether on purpose or by refusing to do something. And so um, there, there's a level of um, guilt here that whether we all will acknowledge it or not is there according to God's holy standards. We're talking about today really as a matter of holiness. And if you don't understand holiness clearly, it'll be hard to uh, understand why God is doing this. But God in his holiness is perfect and right and cannot be near sin. And that is why Jesus came to pay the penalty of that sin to cover us so that we could be near him. And so um, that is really the tension you're feeling in here this morning as we read through this text is that sin moves us from God. But what I also want you to notice is this. Verse 24, he called him Father Abraham, which means as a Jewish man, he was a good Jewish religious man who knew about the faith. He knew about religion. He knew what Abraham was, and he knew where he was, and he knew where Abraham was. So he had lots of, shall we say, biblical knowledge on his side. What was also true of this man man was that in the Jewish mindset, to be rich meant God's blessing was on you. So if you looked at somebody and they were rich, it meant God must be on your side. If they were poor, it meant God was against you. So to find these men in different positions than culturally you would think the beggar who is poor must not have God's favor on his life, otherwise he wouldn't be there. That was their thinking, which is not far off from our thinking in America, if we're honest, The, the, the positions get flipped because wealth and knowledge about God aren't saving. And that's where this gets interesting because you're gonna hear a comment for most people, when the, hell, the, the conversation about hell comes up and it's that why would God send good people anywhere other than heaven? But here's the thing about hell, surprising truth, is that good people go there. And I'm going to say, quote unquote, good people go there. This man isn't necessarily bad per se, but when you equate our sin, Versus God's holiness, the scales never tip in our favor, and so goodness in our sense is not rightness in God's sense. And so this statement alone stands in direct contradiction to our cultural understanding, does it not? Right. Well, the good ones go to heaven. That's what we say. Well, we assume the good ones go to heaven, but but Jesus and Jesus in this story is basically saying "Ah, it's not it's not the way you think it is. It's not necessarily the good ones that go there. Did you know one out of 200 Americans expect to, only, let me say this correctly, only one out of 200 Americans expect to go to hell when they die. That means 199 Americans out of 200 believe Heaven is their final destination. 65% believe they will go to heaven and about you know, 35% don't believe in heaven. They think they're coming back reincarnated as something else. They have a different worldview that would lead them there. But, but by and large, almost everybody thinks they will go to heaven when they die. But what about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven? Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. Jesus says it's easy. The road is wide and many are going to choose rejection of God to go that way. Few will find Jesus and, and walk in the way of life to eternity. But you have to catch this. What he's saying is that many, most, will choose to reject goodness, to reject life, to reject hope because they want their way. That will be the popular move. Later in in Peter, um, he says this about God and eternity. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, the thing about hell and death and all of this very uncomfortable conversation is that uh, there's often this thing, well, if I just had more time, If I just have more time or uh, you feel and maybe you've experienced this yourself or somebody that you've had a conversation with that, oh, that's a decision I'm going to postpone to later. I'll put that decision off. I'll I'll get there. Um, But right now, if we're being honest, it's just too inconvenient to give up my sin. Just you, I just kind of like my lifestyle. I don't really want God to tell me what to do. Um, And God is gracious and he's slow to bring about not just judgment, but he's slow to bring about you getting your way. Here's the interesting thing about hell. We can go through our life and say, God, we don't want him. We don't want his ways. We don't, got, we don't want him. We don't want his ways. And there comes a point where God says, okay, if that's what you want is not me, that means something. If you want to reject God, that means something and you don't get both. He's going to continue on in the story and say this to the man. Verse 26, and besides all this, which basically just summarizes the fact that his goodness would not get him across the line. There was no amount of good deeds he could do to be right. Besides all that, Between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He, back in verse 26, you you see this reality that it's permanent. Hell is a place of permanence. There's no second chances. And what you see from this man's description is that hell is horrific. It's our second point for us, this one. Hell is horrific. There's kind of this weird thing in pop culture where we celebrate hell, right? And there's Highway to Hell, and I'm not picking on the song, but I'm kind of picking on the lyrics and the, the, the mindset it sets that hell is where we're finally free of all the rules and we get to go and be the party people, right? I, we've heard that, Have we not? That that's the place where all the fun finally happens. And according to every description from the word of God, it just isn't true. What happens there is that the full weight of sin that we feel on this earth in part is given full reign. And the pain of the destruction of sin is not what God caused. It's what God allowed when we rejected him. And it is horrific. But I want you to notice what the man doesn't say here. We'll we'll look at what he says first. Hell has not changed this man because he's looking at Lazarus and saying, hey, whipping boy, go do a job for me. Hey, I don't care if you get hurt. Come dip water on my tongue. What is he doing? He thinks this man is still a servant of his beneath him. He's also not caring about this man's well-being because he might get burned by this fire. Um, But really, he just is only concerned about the same God that he served his entire life, which is the God of comfort, the God of ease. Notice he doesn't repent. Notice he doesn't acknowledge God. Notice he doesn't acknowledge the error of his ways. Notice he doesn't turn and say, I wish I had turned to God. None of that happens. Even hell didn't cause this man to repent. And he just saw him as a means to an end, and he's also incredibly selfish because he was only concerned about his brothers. He wasn't concerned about all the other people he knew who were going to experience this. Now, I'm sure you're, you're asking the question about how God could do this and why he could do this, but I, I think we need to understand something a little bit about our life here and now. There's this concept in scripture, it's called common grace. Um, So that whether you're in here and you're not a believer or you're in here and you you are a believer, we are all granted a level of God's grace upon our life, whether we praise him as worthy or not. Okay. So what I mean by that is whether you are a Christian or not, you have breath in your lungs this morning. That is a gift from God. Whether you believe in God or not, you woke up this morning. That is a gift from God. Whether you believe in God or not, you're probably going to have food and provision. Those things are gifts from God that we all experience. And what hell is, is where we finally say, you know what, God, I don't want your goodness. I don't want you. And God finally removes that goodness and grace from us. Does that make sense? Okay, have it your way really is what he says. So the question then is, okay, but... Why would God send somebody to hell? Couldn't he over eternity change their mind? That's a tough question. And honestly, it's the question that causes most people to probably turn off from Christianity if you're not willing to hear the whole conversation through. And so these aren't four ultimate points, but I think these are four points that help clarify that question. Here's here's the first thing. God sends no one to hell. People choose it. God sends no one to hell. People choose it. God did everything to rescue us from our sin and to rescue us from ourselves. He sent his son as a baby, born in a manger, uh, abused and beaten, and sent to a cross, murdered and died, resurrected, beat death. Why? So that no one had to go to hell. But the interesting thing is that we still, and some, will choose it. Why? Because they want their Second thing is that salvation really couldn't be easier. Not only did he go to the cross and die and resurrect, he, he made the pathway like as easy as it could be. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to know a ton of information. You don't have to be in a certain time. You don't have to be in a certain place. You don't have to be with a certain person. You literally just have to accept him as your leader and forgiver. Repent of your sins and you are granted a free gift. Like it couldn't be easier to get out of hell. The third thing is that we just don't understand the destructive nature of sin. You feel it in part, and you have a cry in your heart against injustice, as you rightly should. Seeing somebody hurt, that, that bothers you. Well, what is that? That is sin expressed. War is sin expressed. Bombing of children's hospitals that we're watching on the news is sin expressed. And so on the other hand of this, why would God send people to hell, is this other question of why does God allow evil to happen? Well, he allows evil to happen because he's patient with the people committing evil, that they might repent, find grace, and turn from their sin. And so we want God to do both, and hell is the place where God does both. He deals fully and finally with the sin that we all hate. And in the, the crossfire of sin are people God created in his image. And it breaks God's heart. He doesn't want anybody to go there, which is why Jesus went. Do you feel that tension? The fourth thing is this this is probably the most important for you. For love to exist, you must have freedom to choose it. God could have created man and not given us any choice but to love him, but is that really love? to put us in a straitjacket and force us to obey him, right? Like if I, my wife doesn't love me because she's forced to love me. If she did, it wouldn't be love. It would, it would be something else. And so to love is to risk hatred. And that was a risk God took, that you and I might choose him. But that means he also gave us the freedom to reject him and all of the weight of those choices. Let's keep reading. Let's jump back up to verse 27 and reread that actually. He answered, then I beg you, father, send Lazarus to my family for I have brothers. Let him warn them so that they uh, will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, father Abraham, he said, but if someone uh, from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. What you see is almost this kind of accusation in the man. He's saying, well, um, if you just go warn them, they they won't come here. Basically what he's saying, if somebody had just warned me, I wouldn't be here. And uh, if you could send somebody back from the dead, maybe this Lazarus guy, maybe they might believe. And Abraham says, no, they, they won't. They just, they won't believe. Even if somebody rises back from the dead, there will still be those who choose not to believe. You know, what's interesting is that somebody did rise from the dead. Somebody did walk the streets. Somebody did uh, do miracles. Somebody did witness this guy rise from the dead and not just a few, hundreds saw Jesus rise from the dead. And what do people do? Nah, that's not true. Nah, that's a hallucination. No, they made it up because it protected their hide. And so that's the point of the text. Is that if you're not going to believe the Bible, which what he's talking about here with Moses and the prophets is he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the written word of God. And he says, if somebody's not going to believe the written word of God, there's no miracle that's going to happen in front of them that's going to change their mind. Apart from God moving on their heart and them repenting of their pride and finding forgiveness. You see, the Bible is the best witness to keeping people from hell. We can think sometimes that the apostles had like super, super uh, cheat codes. Like, oh, if I just heal your leg, then you're gonna believe in Jesus, right? The problem was there was tons of people who got healed, tons of people who saw Jesus heal, who just walked away and thought it was entertainment. Walked away and said, ah. See, those things aren't what changes. It's the word of God. That's why we preach from it every week. That's why we get into uncomfortable passages because it has the power to change our life when the Holy Spirit moves through us. What does this all mean for us this morning? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for those around you? If hell is real, how should we live then? That's really the question we should be asking. If hell is real, how should we then live? Well, it has major implications on your life, on my life, whether you're a Christian or not, is an incredible implication. So I'll talk to those in the room who, um, like Lazarus, would say, I know that my good deeds are not enough, and interestingly enough, um, the name Lazarus means God has helped, right? That, that uh, admission that I need someone to come rescue me from my own sins. So I'm gonna talk to those of you who would believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior here this morning. As I read through this passage over the last couple weeks and as I sat in it this week, my heart just became overwhelmed with joy. And I know that's a weird emotion to feel reading through a heavy text, but I just became um, overwhelmed at the fact that I know I deserved hell. I know God didn't owe me a rescue. I know my sinfulness, and I know that my goodness will never outweigh my badness. I'm well aware of that. And yet... God moved heaven and earth, defeated hell, so that I could be free. And it just made me sit and almost weep in, in joy and adoration because God had rescued me when I didn't deserve it. And that's, that's what I hope it does for you. That's our first thing of how we should live differently. We ought to rejoice in our salvation. We can shake our fists at God because he didn't do this or that, but what he did do was rescue you when you weren't worthy of rescuing. Saving me when I didn't have anything worth saving. Redeeming me so that I never have to know the torment of hell. Not only did he save you from this life, he saved you from the next life. And as I sat with that emotion, I began to feel another one of great sadness. Because there are some people I really love and some people I really care about who up to this point have chosen to reject Jesus. And if I believe hell is true, my heart breaks for them. Which is our second point. That we need to share Jesus with urgency. What's interesting about the story of the man is he was surprised, not only that he was in hell, he was surprised how quickly he got there. He was surprised to find himself there already. He thought he had more time. He thought he had more tomorrows. And unfortunately, I have a list of people in my life who thought they had more tomorrows before they surrendered to Jesus. And I know this is heavy, and frankly, it should be heavy. Because when we talk about what God is doing here and we talk about these carnations and we talk about making more and better disciples, they're not just flowery words that are fun to say. They're eternity at stake. They are life and death. They are your neighbors. They are your coworkers. They are the people in your life saying, if only somebody had warned me. That's why, frankly, I'm in ministry. It's not because I find ministry like the most fun thing I could do in my life. It's not because I didn't have another job prospect. It's, not be- it's none of those things. It's because I believe in hell. And I believe that it's true. And God asks us to do something about it. God asks us to be herald of good news. Let's go ahead and look at Romans 1. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you see what I mean? The simplicity of salvation. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter who you are, we're race, nothing. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That is such good news. But then he turns the corner and he says this. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? Paul feels the tension in the reality of heaven and earth and hell and says, I know that this is true, but I know how simple the gospel is. How else will the people in our life hear and be warned unless we tell them? You see how the reality of hell has major implications on your Tuesday afternoon? how it changes your Friday evening conversation. Now, not that every conversation would be about hell. That would not be wise or helpful for anybody. But the urgency of the eternal destination of people around us. It was December 1st. It was a Saturday, 1860. Hundreds of men and boys had, had descended down into a coal mine in um, Great Britain. And this coal mine had kind of gained a reputation as the death pit. Um, because there have been so many accidents over the last 14 years, but they hadn't gone two years accident-free after they had installed a mechanical ventilation system. And so they they sent a whole group down there to to go mine. And uh, while they were down there, there was a lot of explosions. And as coal um, is um, harvested, it can let off gases. Well, it was too much for this mechanical system. And so explosions started happening, and the mine collapsed, and um, many were mangled, and, and many even more were buried below there said at the end of it it was the worst coal mining accident in great britain history and in 146 men and boys as young as the age of 12 died in that coal mine that day can you imagine having to get up and preach a sermon the next sunday well charles spurgeon was a young pastor he was 25 and he was preaching in the largest church in great britain and he he gets up to preach and what what do you preach about do you talk about the unsafe work conditions do you, do you rail against the government, say they should have done more? Well, what do you say? You know, he, he didn't say any of that. What he did say is he got up and he said, can you imagine being one of those mothers who sent your son down there, having never told them about the need for Jesus? Can you imagine being one of those wives who never told your husband about the good news of Jesus for fear of being mocked? And he went down that mine. He then finished the sermon by making this statement. He says, if sinners will be damned, meaning if they will choose hell over Jesus, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, or basically with all of our effort against it. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Let no one go there unwarned, and unprayed for. Church, Jesus did everything so that nobody had to go there. And he's rescued you. He's rescued me. And he's rescued anybody who would call on the name of Jesus. And that's why we're here. I know there's a lot of reasons and a lot of things that the church gets involved in, and we love being a part of all of those things. But if all of those things were stripped away, there is one purpose for why we are here. And the reason God hasn't called Christians home yet is because there's a lot of people he wants to warn. There's a lot of people he wants to rescue. There's a lot of people he wants to bring home to him. That's why we are still here. We're not here to build the kingdom of self We're not here to build the kingdom of Bridgewater. We're here to fill heaven and empty hell. And so for you here this morning who maybe have never accepted Jesus, maybe you have some questions. I hope you have some questions after hearing this. My encouragement to you would be you have been given a choice. And the choice is where God asks you, do you want his way? Well, his way Sounds ruly and, and hard, but it's actually life and life abundant. It's freedom from the pain and the things that ensnare us. It's, it's joy and joy to the max. Or he says, have it your way. Eventually you get the sin that you wanted and it doesn't turn out to be the freedom that you thought it was. And so Jesus calls out to everybody. If you would come to him, you'd find rescue. We're going to pray in a few minutes. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to that. But I just want to talk to us as as a group here. You're going to have a lot of thoughts walking out of this room. You're going to have a lot of opinions probably walking out of this room. Two encouragements for you. Turn to the Bible and see what it says for yourself. Read through the words of Jesus. I I don't want you to take my word for it. Go dig through this. If you find something that I said that didn't line up with this, please come talk to me. Second thing is that I want you to have a conversation with somebody about it. Whether it's something that you're wrestling with about it or something that you feel this urgency to go talk to somebody about what this would prompt us to do today. Don't just walk out of here and let this be just another message. This should cause some action in us. Let's pray. If you're here today and you have never accepted the free gift of salvation that Rescues you not only from your sin, but from the, the destruction that comes with it. And you today have recognized your need for that. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. So, with every head bowed and every eyes closed, I'm going to pray a prayer. And if that's you here today, I'd encourage you to um, pray this prayer back to me, whether out loud or in, in your heart. And, and pray, not pray it back to me, pray it to the Lord. It's this it says, Dear Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner. I recognize that there's no amount of good deeds I could do to save me. But Jesus, I thank you that you died on the cross for me to pay for my sin. Today, I accept you as my savior. I pray that you would forgive me. And I ask that you would be the leader and forgiver in my life. I pray these things in Jesus' name with every head bowed and every eye closed. If that was you here today and, and you prayed to accept Jesus, I would ask you to be bold and nobody's looking around, just me. Go ahead and raise your hand so that we can contact you. We can help you know what your next step is. We would love to walk with you in that. No shame. If that's you, go ahead and throw your hand up. We'd love to help you take your next step. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you. We thank you that you rescued us. We thank you that you pulled us out. We thank you that you warned us, God. Let today be a day where we feel what you feel, the incredible joy of a future free of pain, free of sorrow, free of suffering with you, and an urgency to bring as many people along with us as possible. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.